Hi everyone, it's James Martin, co-founder and former co-host of What's Left. I hope that you're all keeping well. I'm presently recovering after some uh, medical procedures uh, and I'm in a place with no Wi-Fi, otherwise I would have been joining you this evening. And this evening's show is a very special one. Um, it um, really is uh, about, and certainly I'm sure as you get into the show you'll appreciate why I'm saying this, but it's a story that has inspired me uh, throughout my life, uh, as it's a story that combines trade unionism uh, and equalities. And if you're familiar, uh, perhaps, uh, with some of the names that will be discussed this evening, you won't be a few mentions away from a superb film called Pride. Um, Pride is a superb watch if you haven't uh, seen it. However, um, please note that this is a film, there is a genuine story that sits behind it. Uh, and that story um, really uh, tops what already is an excellent film. Um, but the story is something that we should uh, certainly uh, know about a little bit more in our movement and it, uh, it crosses, the story crosses the the oceans and, uh, and the planet essentially uh, with lessons for us to learn or at least reinforce um, uh, as you uh, understand what went on. Now it's not for me to, uh, to really do uh, an interview on behalf of uh, a group called LGSM but really, uh, just for me to say uh, what an absolute uh, privilege it is to have LGSM. And I'm sure uh, as we uh, get on with the, the show, what LGSM is, uh, where it is today perhaps, um, will be discussed. But I just thought I'd say hello, uh, miss you all, and uh, enjoy your evening. Bye now. Hello, I'm George White, and I'd like to introduce the What's Left uh, co-hosts, Rene Barnett. Hi, everyone. And Sean Halsall. Hi, everyone. How are doing? Not so bad. Well, I'm excited. So tonight we've got a, a, a guest on, uh, Mike Jackson, who's the LGSM uh, secretary. Hi, Mike. Hi. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hi, Welcome, welcome. Could uh, maybe we should start by just explaining what LGSM was and is. <laughs> the, somebody, some witch recently said it. So the acronym LGSM, what's what does that stand for? Let's go sell merchandise. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it it, it 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 truly stands for lesbians and gay support the minors uh it, it's about something that happened uh 39 years ago uh in the british uh, miners strike which was probably the second biggest industrial dispute in in british labor history uh second only to the general strike of 1926 
and the major players were Margaret Thatcher, boo, <laughs> uh, and Arthur Scargill, who was a, a miners' leader, uh, general secretary of the, the miners' union, uh, and I swear that he is the best uh, trade union leader that British the Britons have ever had before. That categorically, he was he's, he's a fantastic trade union leader. Um, and what Thatcher did was she uh, was attempting to starve the miners back to, to work. The Tories have always been very good at, at using tactics like threatening people's lives. Uh, um, and she sequestered the funds of the union. So the members of the union had not only paid their union subscriptions to the functioning of the of the union, but included in that was a strike fund so that if they ever went on strike, and obviously when you go on strike, you don't get your wages paid anymore, uh, they would have a little bit of money to help get them by whilst, whilst they were on strike. And Thatcher just came along and uh, sequestered the lot, yeah. Whether that was legal, who knows, but governments, especially Tory governments, seem to be able to do whatever they want to do. Um, and so basically that left the miners absolutely zero money to, to live on. Uh, it meant the union had zero money to function with. Um, and so what the uh, union said to people around the world, because it, it, was, it truly was a global support, uh, was that if you supported the miners, do not send any money to the union because the government will simply seize it and instead twin with individual mining communities. Um, uh, now, if you've seen Pride the movie, it, 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 it varies tremendously from, from that story. We have no problem with the fiction, el, fictional elements to, to the movie. It's a movie, that's what movies do. Um, but in fact, there, there was no point. It, it wasn't that the union shunned LGSM's money. The union shunned everybody's money because it was pointless taking that money. Um, and 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 so that that's what that was that was about. Oh, I see. So that's what really happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, on what Sequestration. If if there were working class people doing this, it'd be called robbery. Absolutely. But because it's the ruling class doing it, it's called sequestration. On what grounds did they claim to sequestrate, Mike? What was what were the supposed breach? Oh well, it, 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 you can go on and on and on with like this kind of stuff. Uh, yes, there was a supposed breach of of I can't remember exactly what the excuse was, but there'd been some uh, um, fine imposed on the union for for being naughty. Um, and it's it's an irrelevance, really, what it yeah. was. It, 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 yeah, in in the same way that the the the, the ongoing still bane is uh, there wasn't a ballot, a national ballot for the strike. Yeah, um, and it, it's a bit of a shame that there wasn't a national ballot for the strike. Would it have made any difference? None whatsoever. And arguably, there had actually been a, a ballot of all the. Uh, branches of the union it, it's a federation is the NUM and so they'd all agreed to, to go on strike if it came to pit closures so in a sense there had been agreement yeah. but not a, as one national body yeah 
Uh, and uh, the people's naivety to think that that would have made any difference. Do you know what I mean? This was class war. It was out and out earnest class war. And all breaks are off. All legal things are off. Do you know what I mean? So the government just marauds in sequestering the union's assets and trying to stop people back to work. It also uh, stopped paying uh, benefits to single miners who were on strike. So it, that cuts off their money supply. All very, very deliberately orchestrated. Be before the miners' strike, eight years before the miners' strike, which started in March 1984, uh, there was a Labour government in power uh, a few times in British history when uh, the Tories were not in power. Uh, and whilst Tories were out of power, they had this shadow minister, uh, Rennie, you may not... Do you have the term shadow minister? Uh, no, but believe me, I'm I'm kind of a, an Anglophile, so I know quite a bit about... Yeah, well, for, for, for your more listeners... More than the average American, I'll say. I hang yeah, around yeah, with yeah. a lot of Brits. For other listeners, it sh uh, shadow means you're in opposition. So yes, you know, there's the, the employment minister and there's a shadow employment minister who's not actually a real minister, but it, it, he's the one in opposition. Anyway, this shadow minister called Nicholas Ridley had been sent off to do a little report for the Conservative Party about what they would do when they next got into power, particularly with the trade unions. And it's available to read. Um, and it was written in about 1977, eight years or so before the, the miners' strike. And it's really chilling reading. It was the miners' strike was so meticulously planned by the Tories. Um, and all kinds of things that, that they would militarise the police, uh, they would cut off the money supply to the strikers, they, they preempted it all. Uh, and of course, we were powerless really to do anything about that, other than the knowledge that that would happen. And it was leaked at the time. I, I'm afraid I was too young and inexperienced to have, have noticed something like that. And it does, it does puzzle me really why why the movement didn't really take heed of that when it was leaked in about 1978, 79. Yeah. I think, I think they, report. they claimed as well that it was that it was you know not not accurate. It was a you know exaggeration or a fabrication. The idea of closing the pits and everything, and then subsequently in the sort of what is it the thirty year um, release yeah. of information um, rules, it came out that it was exactly true. It was it was it was totally genuine. You know, yeah. yeah really the Tories claimed that. Uh, uh, 20,000 miners were going to be made redundant, I think it was. Uh, now, I can't remember the exact figures, but Arthur Scargill said that was a pack of lies, and he, he said the numbers, and as you quite rightly said there, George, 30 years later, when gov government papers were declassified, it turns out that Thatcher and the Tories were lying, and Arthur Scargill was right. And another lie that um, the Tories... Uh, tried to spin was that the miners' strike was a dispute between the miners and the employers, the, the coal board. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that takes some imagination. For a start, the coal board was the state, 
it, it, you know, it, we, it was a, not a privatised industry. It belonged to the government. Yeah, so the 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 government were the direct employers, um, but they they pretended that they and they're doing it again right now in Britain. Uh, they pretended that really it's nothing to do with them. It's an industrial dispute, and that's up to the both parties to to sort out. Absolute nonsense. And again, those government papers that were declassified. You can actually see in that Margaret Thatcher's personal handwriting marginal notes on the cabinet minutes where she's micromanaging the the strike, working out uh, you know the numbers of scab lorries that will be used to to move coal because the good old railway workers uh, were uh, were absolutely in solidarity with the miners and not a single lump of coal was moved by the railways. Uh, during during the strike, the th the toys had to uh, find hundreds, probably thousands of scab lorry drivers and scab lorry companies that would move the coal. And there's Margaret Thatcher just micromanaging all of this. You can see it in the sides of the side notes, as I say, of the cabinet papers. Yeah, a little bit earlier, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit earlier, Mike. You mentioned class war. And it's a really interesting sort of phrase to me because if anyone. On, on our political side of the fence, he uses that that sort of them words. It's, oh, you're a militant lunatic and you're, you're living in a imaginary land when I think class war is something that's being done to working class people for, for the last 30, 40, 50 years now, where it's completely acceptable for them to take away safety nets, to sort of attack the NHS, destroy education we're seeing now. We're in a state in this country where kids are going to school not knowing the roof's going to come in. It's absolutely bonkers, but the minute anyone on our side starts talking about class war, it's it's red under the bad territory, and we're all we're all lunatics. We should be afraid of it's. It's it's interesting that that sort of terminology. I mean, I'm completely comfortable owning owning my politics, but it's yeah, yeah. yeah. The thing is, it, 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 what we know is it's their job to do that. It's their job to denigrate us in every which way that they can whether it's true or false, whether it's a lie, it's absolutely irrelevant. It's really important that they denigrate the left because we have class consciousness and because we do believe in, in class politics. Um, and, you know, the only thing that the ruling class have to do is to make sure that everybody else is not simultaneously looking at them. Because if we all, at the same time, around the world all look at them and say this is all your fault yeah and that's it game's up done job done so it's really important for the ruling class to constantly keep spinning lies and distractions to put blame on other other people um and i mean we know that you know i, I know it personally because you know the lgbt community was was used in in in, in that regard in, in Britain, uh, still is with the uh, recent stuff about uh, trans people um, and in places like Russia, um, the LGBT community is, 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 is being decried again. And it, you know... What about in the house... United States of America? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's how, really how pathetic is that? Choose, choose something that will always be a minority group no matter yes. what country and what stage in history we will always be a minority group uh, so it makes it very difficult for us to fight back on our own 
and, and just just smear us, just tell lies about us and other us. You know, what what spineless people these these are. Do you know what I mean? These people are, are just unbelievably evil. Anyway, we well, managed to turn that around, and that's what this podcast is about. Absolutely. Just with just with that, Mike, as well. Just the sort of going back to the idea that. Um, you know the divide and conquer the the, the othering bit, mm. but the idea that um, somehow the, the the smaller sections are, are all separate when in reality they're all part of the working class. It it, it ought not to be, and it shouldn't be um, that yeah. there's there's sort of bite-sized chunks that the ruling class can can knock off one by one mm. because if we all stand together, they can't. You know, the, just the mathematics of it. There's, there's lots yeah. of us. There's a very few yeah. of them, isn't there? Well, I mean, I think that's what the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing was about. That, that, and it wasn't just about Britain. The global capitalist elite was watching what was happening, watching Jeremy Corbyn's tremendous public appeal. Uh, the only politician who could walk into a city, literally, and more or less, and stand on a soapbox with only a few hours notice or a day or two's notice and thousands of people would flock to hear him speaking live that must have been the envy of every politician around the world it must have also bloody well frightened the life out of them that that, that there is that much feeling you know they 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 keep they constantly tweaking their knobs i always think of mm. you know it's like mad scientists keep tweaking the knobs to make sure we're all divided and we're all looking the wrong way and and that and then suddenly one man comes along and changes all that and millions of people just go that's what we want well it, that must have just frightened the ruling elites around the world frightened them to death and so they use everything in the power to discredit him didn't have to be truthful or honest or whatever uh and you know the there the might not be a lot of these people but they have an enormous amount of power because they've got most of the money in the world um and that's why they made this determined effort to destroy him uh, which they as far as i can see they they've installed a, a tory in disguise in in yeah. keir starmer yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 they couldn't be more different. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it's it's not really worth wasting our breath over Stormer, really. It, it, you know, and they they keep you know. I, I like the way that the right wing keep using words like this word "modernize." That is such a euphemism. Modernize actually means completely opposite. It means go back to to almost primitive. Dog eat dog, you know, rugged individualism. Society doesn't exist. Community doesn't exist. Document uh, um, democracy is a bit of a nuisance, really. You know, it should all be just like savages out there, like dogs going going round. Do you know what I mean? That's Absolutely. just unbelievable. And to to believe that 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 Keir Starmer has anything to contribute. It's just a madness that they are pink versions of the Tories. The, the, the Tory party, I'm sure, are quite glad that Keir Starmer exists and, and Blair exists and Mandelson exists because they're the kind of, they're like kind of the default 
uh, party. You know, if the Tories lose, at least we get the pink Tories in, uh, yeah. which is what Keir Starmer, etc., is. They represent nothing that would help ordinary people. And they reneged on, on almost every single promise that they made. Yeah. And the and the the sort of uh, the the sort of fetish fetishization of the individual, because I don't believe that human beings are designed to work that way. I don't believe that it's the natural state of human beings to be. It's all about me, and I'll fight everybody else for 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 what we've got. I think it is the yeah. natural state of human beings to socialize, to be with each other, to share, to live in common. I think that is the natural state of. Of the species, I think it's it, it's them who are wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think humans. If I mean, you hear this all the time. Oh, people are greedy. I don't think humans get to where we are if, if greed's the sort of default position. It is sharing and looking after each other. That's how we've survived for most of of the human condition to get to where we are. But just yeah. moving forward a bit, uh, Mark Ashton. He was a, a real inspiration to a lot of people and the movement. Uh, communist and fellow traveller with with many people in the trade union movement. What was it like working with him back in the day? Um, oh, he was really good fun, was Mark. Um, I, I look back and just think how young we all were. Mark would have been about <laughs> 24 years old uh, at the time of LGSM. I, I was 29 going on 30. I was one of the older ones. Um and Mark, it's a surprising journey Mark went on, really, because he, he wasn't brought up in any way politically. Um, a lot of people on the left, in my experience, often come from families that are, are, are mm. left or whatever, but not so with, with, with Mark. Uh, as, a, as a young teenager, he, he, he was into dance and uh, clubbing and, and fashion and stuff like that, like a little baby gay that he was. Um, um, and it had no interest in politics. And another reason possibly for that was the fact that he actually was growing up in, in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So politics there was extremely dangerous and most people were frightened uh, and didn't raise their voice too much because you just didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, so you really didn't get mixed up in, in, in political struggle in, in Northern Ireland then. But his father fitted um, text, second-hand textile machinery. Uh, I suppose Britain's cotton mills were, were closing in, in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, and a lot of the it, 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 it machinery was still uh, workable. Uh, but it was just redundant. And so his father used to, went around the world uh, fitting these huge textile machines in other parts of the world. And he'd got a contract doing this in Bangladesh and he invited Mark to go out and see him. And we all really think now that it was that experience that, that switched the light on in Mark's head. Because, of course, he... I mean, he grew up in a, a northern working-class town, so there was quite a lot of poverty uh, uh, as it was in my childhood uh, uh, around but of course the poverty in Bangladesh was a, a different league completely see children homeless begging on the streets and people with 
disabilities begging on the streets where there were no welfare benefits, there was no universal health care or whatever. And I think this really shocked Mark and he, he came back and he just got into politics. I never, I regret never really having a, a, a thorough conversation with him about this because by the time I met him, which is probably only about three years later, he was a, a complete communist firebrand, incredibly knowledgeable. He'd, he'd learnt so much and, um, you know, during the LGSM time actually progressed to becoming the general secretary of the Young Communist League. I, I'd be careful not to over-egg that much because probably the, the total membership of the youth, youth group of the Young Communist League nationally wasn't very high. You know, it's a very grand title. But it, it, nevertheless, that's what he became. And, and, you know, quite rightly so as well, do you know what I mean? Because he had put an awful lot of effort into into learning the history of, of the labour movement and socialism and Marxism. Etc. Yeah. Where, where all the um, so when you when you were founding LGSM, where all the where was everybody coming from a political side, or were it, were it was it a oh, hodgepodge no. of, of of all sorts? That's a, a good good question. Uh, so because the miners' strike was such a huge thing, the, some people have described it as a civil war without guns. You know, you 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 were either pro miner or against the miners. Um, and because it was such a big thing and it was on the new television news every night, um, it drew in a lot of people who'd never been involved in politics before. Uh, and of course, the established left of whatever persuasion were, you know, they could smell young blood, as it were, do you know what I mean? And they were all kind of, they were all over it, you know, trying to recruit people and so forth. And, and that was reflected in LGSM. So we had... Obviously, the majority of the people who are in attracted to LGSM were already political people. Uh, so we have people from Socialist Action, Socialist Workers Party, Communist Party, the New Communist Party. We had an, one anarcho-syndicalist, which impressed me a lot because there's so many syllables there. I had no fucking idea what an anarcho-syndicalist was, but it sounded cool. Um, uh, um, anarchists, people like me who weren't politically aligned but were you know, socialists. Um, and, as I say, people who were absolutely new to politics, who were involved because it, for them it wasn't a class thing and it it, it, it wasn't a, la a labor trade union movement thing it was just natural justice they just thought that the miners were being treated really sh in a shit way it was just not just uh and that'll do doesn't matter where people are coming from as long as the, you get them and and you all work together and um there was some political jostling uh i i it always it reminds me of kind of men bearing the chest, you know what I mean? The, the different political parties trying to recruit people. Uh, and it, it did get a bit tedious for some people, uh, including me, to be honest. Um, and we, Mark and I both got concerned about that. And basically we proposed a motion. And LGSM only had two motions ever. Uh because that really that wasn't the point of the group uh, to have motions, but the, w one of these motions was simply 
LGSM is open to anybody from the, what we would now refer to as the LGBT plus community uh, who supports the miners' strike. Uh, and our job is to raise funds for the, for the, for the, for the striking miners and, and to kind of publicise all the facts about mm. the strike. And that was it. So, and that was good because the group was, grew so quickly, so exponentially, that even the different factions of the left quickly just dropped everything because they everybody knew we were onto something really good here and it was far too precious to fuck up by you know getting into factional arguments and so yeah. and for newcomers it bores the life out of them because they don't know what you're talking about you know what i mean it's like mm. um you know the, the bread and butter thing is let's get on the streets let's defend the miners let's collect money for the miners uh and 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 fight for them which is kind of what what we did yeah oh, imagine what the left could achieve if we all just stopped the committees and motions in this country and just got on with the basics it's uh it'd be yeah. incredible to see yeah. yeah well you know Sean, well i suppose that's the thing about action isn't it, it it's it's when stuff's happening that's when the real change comes and you can't yeah. necessarily always you can't always predict when that will happen it could it obviously is more likely to happen through things like strikes but it could happen through almost any event really yeah. and it's about being savvy enough wise enough to react to that event and to see the the the, the potential of it yeah so what was it like seeing yourself being portrayed by someone else on screen like it's <laughs> a, a question a lot of people ask, and it's a, certainly a question I would have asked. Uh, but now I've actually been in a position where I, <laughs> it was. And when you think about it, you'd be a very odd person if you had an idea of how people perceive you beyond a kind of generic, well, I'd like to think people that thought I was a nice bloke. You know, as as all four of us would, you know, but you don't really kind of think much more about what what you come over like to other people. You'd be a very very odd person if you did. Uh, so I'm not the person to judge whether he portrayed me accurately or not. But my family, and my friends are, and they all went oh. spot on. Yeah, and he's a he's a good looking tall fella as well. So that, I, I didn't have any. <laughs> So what was the was the time spent um, to learn your behaviours and your characteristics? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Joe Gilgan, who plays Mike, plays me, uh, came round to the flat uh, and spent forty five minutes with me and Stephen Barris, the writer. The odd thing was, a few days prior to that, uh, I'd been uh, introduced to Ben Schnetzer, who was the American actor who played Mike Ashton. Uh, he was unaccompanied by Stephen Beresford. Ben Schnetzer and I were just left to it. And in fact, I spent a day with Ben because obviously Mike was no longer here for Ben to kind of meet. Uh, so he, he was pumping me for information about, about Mike. Uh, now, Ben, it was interesting. Ben's a very, very studious actor. Um, and I just said to um, 
Stephen Verison afterwards, I said, hmm, I find it a bit curious that, that you let Ben Schnetzer loose on, on me and we spend a day together unchaperoned and I have 30, 45 minutes with um, uh, Joe Gilgan and, and you're <laughs> sat present. And he said, yeah, well, I know you, you like a drink. I know uh, Joe's a stoner. I'm, I'm not going to leave you two t- <laughs> until after this movie's released. Once it's released, you can do what you want, but until it's released, I'm keeping my eyes on you, on you lot. And I think that's quite right. I, I understand that. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was great, and I mean, obviously, having a movie made about your life, it 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 is amazing, and and I learned so much about the industry. I mean, I my background, my job, I'm retired now, but my job was horticulture, and it's hard to think of something more remote from the movie industry than than gardening. Do you know what I mean? So I learned a lot about the movie industry, how it all works. I went on the three uh shoots i went on uh, one of the gay word shoots i went on the pits and perverts ballroom scene shoots um and another one i can't quite remember now yeah and it, it was interesting how so the pits and perverts one they have a cgi person who's wandering around with a little uh uh not a laptop uh tablets because they have 200 et- extras but those 200 extras have to be give the effects of one and a half thousand crowd <laughs> people so they keep stopping getting to put different clothes on and then regrouping and then he has to kind of merge it's really clever how it's all done uh the gaze of word shoots uh they couldn't actually use gaze of word bookshop which is still uh, going by the way uh it would have been too expensive and I don't think Gay's Word would have wanted to be closed down for that length of time. So they, they, they found an old derelict shop in, in northwest London somewhere and it was really interesting to watch them turn a street from the year 2011 into the year 1984. So they do tricks like um, put litter bins over modern parking beats meters uh, litter bins that you would have had in the 1980s and all kind of tricks like that the yellow lines on the road they wouldn't have been there so they get a lot tipper lorry to come in and they drop all this grey gravel so it's very clever all that how it all works that stuff yeah do you think Mike with with sort of how divided the country and politics has come in, in Great Britain and, and America do you think a group like LGSM could could sort of get their act together today if they were forming and and sort of come around to support, like say, the train workers at the moment? Do you think, or do you think there'd be too much opposition from sort of far right actors and and that sort of stuff? Uh, oh God, that's I, I, it's it's. I'm going to rule that one out of order because it's like an ahistorical question, really. I mean, it. it whatever happens now is going to be different to almost 40 years ago i mean for example um i suppose a lot of young people uh, 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 not necessarily lgbt people might wonder why we formed an lgbt support group for the miners do you know what i mean because today that wouldn't seem to be necessary 
because for example the trade unions are, are, are there as vanguards of lgbt mm. equality but of course they weren't 40 years ago they were pretty hostile to women uh, to black and brown faces and and to queer people um and so we coalesced as LGBT activists precisely because we needed to support one another uh, in, in fighting homophobia. And we had no problem with fighting homophobia because that was the only way we were going to change the world. But what we did need is each other for support, you know, in case you're attacked either physically or verbally. So I, I'm not really answering your question. I appreciate that, Sean, but I'm quite optimistic about, very optimistic, in fact, about young activists today. They do things in a completely different way uh, that, that, that we do. Uh, they've learnt from things that we did, as we ourselves learned from our predecessors. Uh, they've taken the baton and run with it. Uh, some of the really positive stuff, they're far more inclusive than we ever were. Uh, they, they automatically just include people in a way that we never thought to. Um, and especially the really younger generation, the teenagers and the people under 25, say, uh, they're also much more inclusive about their politics. They link everything together. They, they can link the minor strike to gender equality to colonialism uh, you know they're, they're making all those links which again must terrify the right wing because the right wing's job is to confuse people about all that sort of stuff and and certainly not make connections like that dear and me to to suggest that uh, the british empire was a despicable awful uh, history yeah, of, 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 of colonization, slavery, torture, murder, concentration camps, etc. It was. That's actually what British history is, has been. Uh, and this country's, you know, should hold its head in shame in, in that respect. Or at least this country's work, uh, ruling class should hold its head in, in, in shame. Yeah. Because that same ruling class immiserated my ancestors. My ancestors were miners, they were uh, weavers. I come from originally from Lancashire, where cotton weaving was a, a big thing. Um, and, you know, I'm old enough to remember in my childhood the conditions that we grew up in, and they were filthy uh, because of the industrial grime, uh, the air was really polluted. Um, you know, it, it, it was a pretty grim way to, to, to grow up. But it was the 1960s, things already were changing. There, there, was, there was light uh, appearing. Uh, you had that kind of first, uh, I suppose, the beat culture of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, you had the pill, so women had a, a huge emancipation there. Um, we were in the 1960s and 70s, uh, we were making great headway with wages. The unions were powerful and strong and, and winning uh, good pay for people. And you had a younger generation, you know, under 25, who got money in the pocket and they could go out and buy fancy clothes and uh, uh, vinyl records and, and, and so forth. That had never uh, happened previously. So 
it was an interesting period for me as a youngster because it was the tail end of kind of Victorian industrialism uh, and it was the beginning of a kind of uh, this newer modern world. Um, and in Britain, of course, in 1945, we had a, 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 a Labour landslide and the Attlee government that introduced all kinds of amazing things for advancing the British working class uh, around housing, education, the introduction of the National Health Service, of course, welfare benefits, uh, from they used to say from cradle to the grave, uh, you will be looked after by the states. And that was fantastic. And that lasted nearly 30 years. And the person who came along to systematically destroy that was Margaret Thatcher. Um, she started it off in Britain and then really it rippled all around the world. She she started off in Britain in, in what you might call the democratic culture. The first person who really started that wave was uh, Pinochet in Chile. But he introduced that, that new economic wave uh, by being a murderous dictator and, and assassinating the trade unionists and the socialists in the, in the national football stadium. Uh, Thatcher couldn't quite do it <laughs> as brutally as that. But she was a personal admirer and friend of General Pinochet of, uh, of Chile. That just shows you what kind of monster she, she, she really was. Yeah. And, and then and protect, was, went on to protect him from extradition when he came over to, uh, to Abbey's operation as well. And, and that was just down the road from where I live. It was just so frustrating. I so wanted to break in and <laughs> say, you, 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 you scoundrel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the American right is, uh, you know, seems to have uh, a really cruel streak in it. Uh, while they, you know, are supported heavily by the evangelical community of Christians, who claim to, you know, follow Jesus Christ and do what Jesus did, which was, of course, take care of the poor uh, and the sick and and uh, and all that. But yet they do the they do the opposite. But you know, I've been hearing more and more, you know, that cruelty is the key. Cruelty is the point. They that's what they're trying to do. They're just trying to be as cruel as possible. Do you feel like that's what Thatcher, I mean, do you feel like she recognized at all the cruelty of what she was doing? Because over here, Margaret Thatcher was just like, oh, they've got a lady in a high position. That's really cool. Well, that's what you, that's what the American propaganda machine was made you think. That's that. right. It wasn't, it wasn't true. Um, yeah, because... You know, she famously said there is no such thing as society. There are families. What was it? Families and individuals. Yeah. Now, that's a really chilling thing. That's quite that's quite fascistic, that. Because to, to deny there is such a thing as society means a denial of collective help. And we, early on in this programme, said, actually, we all, us four, believe that human beings are naturally tribal. We naturally look after each other. That's how we operate as a species. And, and some of our closest biological uh, relatives, it's, just, it's the same thing. Um, but the, the Tories don't like that idea. They, they like individualism. 
Uh, and you can see why, because, you know, they deny class exists too rightly, because, you know, if you accept that class exists, then, then you have to work out that there actually is a ruling class and they need to be destroyed. Um, and they don't like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's it. That, the essential difference between us and them is we believe in collectivism. Yeah, we don't believe in big leaders. We, uh, I mentioned that, that I thought either Scargill was the best trade union Britain's ever had. I, I think I can say that factually without adoring him or venerating him exactly. as special. Yeah, um, uh, 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 that's just an event. And that Arthur Scargill became who he became because of events and people and history that led to him being who he was, his influences. So, you know, I, d I do not believe that Jeff Bezos is an outstanding, f amazing human being. He's just, uh, 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 can I swear? He's just fucking rich. That's that's all he is. He's just fucking rich. You know, Jeff Bezos is nothing. The, re the reason Amazon is a successful company is because of the logistics and the technology that Amazon uses, and they use the very best and very latest of, of human technology. That technology was nev never invented by Jeff Bezos. That technology has come from hundreds of years of people working by brain or by brawn wow. yeah, to develop technology and computers and AI and, and, and so forth. And, and it's the hundreds of thousands of inventors and scientists and engineers that have produced Jeff Bezos's empire, not Jeff Bezos. It's it, it's the fruit of, of all that labour that's happened before. And, you know, and Jeff the, Bezos and, is nothing. And the and the idea as well that that they 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 sort of put across that I did it all, I did it all by myself. You know, oh, yeah, I, yeah. In, in order in order for example for Amazon to even exist, it requires a healthy workforce to be there. So it requires some kind of healthcare that's system. Right. Requires workers that can, um, you know, comprehend the, the task that they have. You know, literacy, numeracy requires an education system. It requires the wagons to go about and d deliver the stuff and the vans. So it, it relies on all these things that tax pays for, that society pays for, and then they choose to pretend like they're headquartered somewhere that they're not, or pretend that the transaction happens on the World Wide Web so it doesn't happen in the UK or it doesn't happen in America, it happens in some third party tax haven type country. And then the idea that, you know, I did it all by myself whilst allowing everybody else to pay for those things that requ that you require for your business to function. It's, it's, oh, even, it's even more. Elon really. Musk, I mean, they're all that way, you know. Yeah, It's, it's even crazier than that because it's, Aside from the tax and stuff, Jeff Bezos never made a penny. It's the workers who do the labour, delivering the stuff, parceling it, running around, picking. The business model at Amazon is designed to break their workers. They're just seen as robots. Once they're done, we'll find another worker to put in the place. Mm -hmm. We'll underpay them. We'll get them relying on, on universal credit or state benefits to, to feed and clothe themselves, put a roof over their heads. It's, it's Bezos, Elon Musk. None of these people have ever made a penny. They've stolen money from the people who, who do the labour for them. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Taylor's old. But of course, where, where where will that all end? Because the the, the one group of people you've, you, you've, you've, we've not talked about there 
is the actual end consumer. The end consumer is us. The end consumer are the workers, the people who've got money in the, the pocket. Mm -hmm. And if we carry on being completely irresponsible about society in that Thatcherite sense, then we could end up with a system where AI runs everything and nobody's working anymore. How does that system work? You, you know, it, it, it's it's mad. You can't have Amazon unless you've got millions and millions and millions of customers. Do you know what I mean? Unless the super rich think that by being in their little club they, and, and swapping multi-million pound oil paintings with each other will somehow work. Well, it won't, actually. I've got news <laughs> because farming, you can't kind of... You, be, it's a very limited ability to do AI with farming and so forth. We need workers. We need food. We need that's, that's, iron that's, ore and blah, blah, blah. That's yeah. the contradiction of all, isn't it? It's, it's these businesses who are trying to automate and AI have run out of existence, out of a job, out of the workplace. Who's left to buy the shit at the end of this? Who's left to, to consume the nonsense <laughs> that, that we're all producing? It's, it's just no one's thought that far ahead by all all accounts it's, it's just madness to me yeah well it is an insane system it's a very dangerous unstable uh system i mean it's it's it's, it's, it's always quite miraculous really how capitalism does survive because it's a, it's a it's a completely insane economy uh and it's an insane way of organizing a society it really is and and with climate change we've got now introduced a factor that's never existed before uh, nothing as serious as climate change has ever existed before and that as naomi klein said that does change absolutely everything um and governments are putting their head in the sand and they're lying to us you know they're, they're saying that they're doing stuff but uh, they're not and they're not doing enough um I did a bit of research, you know, because I've worked in land-based industry all my life. When when global warming was first mooted, it, it was about 1975, and I was a, a student of horticulture then. And I thought, my God, this is amazing. This must be really bad because they'd try and hide something like that if they possibly could. But it must be so widespread that it's undeniable. That was 1975. Yeah. I then did a bit of further research in it. There was a press cutting from a New Zealand newspaper, 1911. Same thing, global warming due to carbon uh, emissions into the atmosphere. And I did further research and I, I got back to something like 1860. So we've known about the deleterious effects of pumping all this carbon into the atmosphere since the 1860s. Nothing's been done about it. Why? Because there's a profit to be made. And, 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 and sort of pretty early on in the, um, in the use of carbon as well, it, it was pretty early on in the, you know, probably only, uh, you know, in a, in a big fashion, perhaps 60, 70, 80 years on from when they were starting to, um, you know, use steam to power things. Yeah. It, it wasn't long after then, if they if they yeah. caught them down that early on. Yeah, yeah. But it was a great age of scientific discovery, wasn't it? So, you know, they'd be questing for all, all, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just we've, we've only got a few minutes left, Mike. I just wanted to ask 
what was it like the first time you walked into that welfare hall in Wales? Well, it, it that's another scene where it was very, very different to what you see in the, the movie. Yeah. Um, it's now become... So there's that wonderful uh, shoot in the movie where the telephone call rings in the miners' welfare hall and uh, Gwen, the character, walks over to the phone and answers it. Beautiful bit of cinema, uh, completely untrue. Uh, it, what it actually was was a letter that I wrote um, and... Uh, I remember posting the letter thinking, God, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when that letter's opened in <laughs> in South Wales. Uh, and it's only in recent years we've found out the detail of what happened. Uh, they met weekly on Sundays, which LGSM did as well in, in London. Uh, and the cor weekly correspondence was re read out. And when my letter was read out to, to them, there was some remarks that all, all the men you know only the men made some remarks and there's a few titters and giggles and so so forth and the women just rounded on the men basically they, these they're generally tough women in mining communities mining's a it's a brutal job and i think the history of of, of mining communities that the women have had to be tough because the men have got these brutal jobs and and hard jobs dangerous jobs often very unhealthy jobs as well uh risking their lives every day a lot of stress uh so the women are pretty tough and the women just turned on the men and said these people want to support us and we need that support what are you laughing at what's funny about this maybe they've been monstered in the same way that we've been monstered in the news in the in the british the press don't you think it would be right to meet them and to find out what they're really like so we were extended an invitation along with all the other support groups around the country that supported that particular community um, and all the mining communities would every few months hold a weekend where they get the supporters to come down and stay in their community for the weekend uh, just to see how they were getting on, uh, see what they're doing with the money that we were raising, see what problems we're having. And of course, it's pre-internet, pre-mobile phones. We didn't have 24-hour news uh, channels. And I mean, the BBC was just, uh, as it still is, just completely dishonest and right-wing. So we were too busy me, hiding me. Jimmy Savile secrets. <laughs> Uh, meeting one-to-one -one was actually an, a chance for us to actually get the news straight from their mouths uh, because otherwise you weren't getting that that, that direct news. Uh, so we went down on that first visit. Uh, we were the biggest group that weekend. There were 27 of us, not the eight portrayed in the movie. So we were a very conspicuous group. Uh, the other groups that were there, there were some uh, Nalgo uh, trade unionists, which is now Unison, uh, there were Fleet Street print worker uh, trade unionists there. Uh, there were some SWP people there. Uh, but we walked into that miners' welfare club on the Sunday night. Uh, it was packed, two or three hundred people in there. Uh, they were on strike, so they couldn't afford babysitters. So there were kids running around, grandmas and granddads. 27 young LGBT people from London walk in. Well, it's a bit kind of like, whoa. And the whole tenor of the conversations dropped and we knew that was a direct response to our presence. 
but for a split second we didn't know which way it was going to go and then suddenly started clapping and the whole two to three hundred people stood up and gave us a standing ovation oh. and we knew right then that history was being changed but nobody none of us expected such a reception because they'd worked it out they they'd had their own discussions so that by the time we got there they they saw us for what they were and that applause i think was them saying it's brave of you to do this we know what you're doing you you are our kind your family yeah. and uh well by the end of the night alcohol having the lubricated conversations it, all kinds of personal questions were being asked <laughs> and, and, and sexual tips exchanged and things like that do you know what I mean I mean what's the point in knowing about gay men if you don't pick up some tips <laughs> I'm sure some of the miners wives the younger miners wives looking at their husband as if say yeah well we should try that mm. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly I'm remember sorry. somebody asking one one woman asking what, what a cock ring was and, and she she looked at her husband across the table and there is a kind of look of, mm, we should try that. <laughs> oh my God. There you go. Fantastic. So we have, we, have, we have our uses, you see. <laughs> but but uh, honestly, that Sunday night when we were driving back to London, we were on fire. We were yeah. writing press reports. Uh, I mean, what fantastic press release, do you know what I mean? That we got a stand innovation. Uh, so, of course, our collections just went woof, you know. Yeah. People who were people who have been cynical up to that point were just saying, "Wow, you really have got the miners to listen to us." And then, of course, famously, twelve months later, nineteen eighty-five Gay Pride March, the miners actually came to London, and and we led the Gay Pride March, and that was yeah the second best moment in my life. The first bit was walking into that unemployed miners' welfare hall and getting that reception. But the, the 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 idea the idea and I think it's even sort of quoted in in the film. But the idea of that that practical solidarity and that idea that you've got a friend that you never knew you had, and that is solidarity. That is the idea of solidarity, and yeah. and the idea that it then reciprocated. It's just perfectly illustrates what solidarity is all about, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a good education film, isn't it, for for the labour movement. Absolutely. And we've run out of time here, Mike, but it's been absolutely fantastic having you and, and hearing some of these stories firsthand. Because I think, again, it's no exaggeration to say that the LGSM and, and what you did there, I think, probably moved forwards the LGBT rights with the Labour Party, especially probably a good decade. And, and especially with the trade union movement, I think it, it's, yeah, you've certainly inspired a lot of the trade union reps that I've I've showed that film to in, in your story. And yeah, thank you from, from all of us here and, and all of our listeners, I'm sure. So uh, what's left, I think we need to look at the, look at the past, learn from, from what we've done in the past and realise that, that if these things can be done once, they can be done again and we've got to keep going. And we can't quit because if we quit, we've lost. So as Bob Crow said, we've got to keep fighting. So thank yeah. you, everyone, and good night. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Bye.